0: On days of commemoration and celebration, like today, and on days of mourning and widely broadcasted tragedy, there are a few voices in my life that I turn to, some personal friends and some figures that I've interacted with online. Um, And I know that these people will offer grounding or challenging words in the moment. From time to time at BLC, we like to talk more in depth about a particular author or theologian. And so this week we are looking to the work of Cole Arthur Riley, someone I turn to, someone we often turn to as a community. Her social media account, Black Liturgies, she defines as a space for black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. And she fairly recently came out with a book called um, This Here Flesh. And I wanna offer for us this morning a caveat about engaging with Cole's work. In a recent interview with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach, they asked her how she felt about white people celebrating her work. Cole talks about what Toni Morrison calls the white gaze and how her work isn't written for a white audience. It's written for her grandma and dad and others she imagines with her as she's writing. She names the nuance of not intending her work for white people, but also not gatekeeping her work, especially for those who are able to decenter themselves as they read. In that same interview, Glennon names this here flesh as a sacred text. And I'm someone who fully believes this, that there isn't just one word of God, there are actually many words of God. So I don't think it's a stretch at all to call Cole's work a sacred text. This is interesting to me because often sacred texts have a very specific audience in mind. And for those of us who are not a part of the immediate audience, like how we approach the Bible, we have to decenter ourselves as we read. But this process does not diminish the profound meaning and hope we may gain from interacting with the words. A simple way to frame this approach, because it's important that it's nuanced, when I worked with college students in a formation cohort, we would go on church visits throughout the first semester. We would go and visit a wide range of communities, think Eastern Orthodox to Hillsong Church to BLC. (laughs) Wide range there. Afterwards, we debriefed the experience, and the question was never, what did you like or dislike? Instead, we asked the students, how did you experience God? Can you name the holy? This is a de-centering practice, naming what is instead of expressing our opinions. And as I reread This Here Flesh this past week, I found that question coming to mind, a helpful reminder when I fell into the tempting place of she's naming things I completely resonate with, as a queer black woman with chronic illness, there are pieces of our identities that overlap. And this book was not about me and not for me. This is a humble posture I'd like to, us all to take of seeing God over and over in her words, an undeniable holiness that isn't contingent on my preferences or positionality, that we get to be in a place of deep appreciation and gratitude without co-opting her intent. We quote black liturgies often and have never really named how whiteness impacts interacting with her work. So I wanted to name that for us today. As someone who really loves words and writing, Cole feels like a writer's writer to me and I often get swept up in her poetic imagery. Her process of contemplative storytelling brings us to our topic for today, belonging. After spending some time talking about community the past couple weeks, discussing belonging felt like a natural next step. And I want to suggest for us that landing in a healthy place of belonging involves a balance of belonging to ourselves and belonging to one another, and they certainly overlap. But for each of these, we'll talk through some obstacles and some new beliefs that we can take up to cultivate a deeper sense of meaning. When it comes to belonging to self, I think a potential obstacle is fear and anxiety. I'm grateful for Cole's depiction of anxiety as the shadow side of paying attention. This is helpful wording for me as someone who is anxious most of the time. (laughs) Noticing when fear pops up or anxiety takes over may lead us to try and run in the opposite direction, to disconnect or to invalidate our very real feelings. Cole writes that fear becomes anxiety when it makes its home in you. Some of us may have well have rolled out the welcome mat and lit some candles. I know that anxiety loves to make itself at home and stay a while. Regardless of if you know the embodied feeling of anxiety well or not, we all have things that we are fearful of and disconnection can be a coping mechanism. Whiteness often forces both the oppressed and the oppressor to disconnect from feeling in order to survive, in order to conquer. Dehumanizing goes both ways. How do we not be completely consumed by our own fears and anxiety? A belief that we can take up together is that we can remain rooted in awe and in wonder Cole writes that awe is an exercise, both a doing and a being. It is a spiritual muscle of our humanity that we can only keep from atrophying if we exercise it habitually. A question you can ask yourself here is when was the last time I was caught up in wonder? When was I in awe of what was around me? She says wonder requires a person not to forget themselves, but to feel themselves so acutely That their connectedness to every created thing comes into focus in sacred awe we are a part of the story and i want to point out for us that awe and wonder are not the same as certainty and clarity sometimes we think that if we are in control if we know everything there is to know we won't need to be anxious or fearful but certainty isn't what cole beckons us toward it's childlike wonder You don't have to know all of the facts about sunsets or your neighbor in order to be in awe of intricate creation. Cole says that a life that is holy is a life that allows for all of your uncertainties, your curiosities, and your unbelief that doesn't just allow for them but holds them as sacred. I think that if you're paying close attention, chances are you'll get more anxiety and more amazement, and I don't think that's a fluke. It's just human reality. Most of us can't decide to just be unafraid. Instead, we learn to hope and be in awe, even in the fear and anxiety. Another potential obstacle to belonging to ourself is shame. And shame is tricky. It can feel impossible to overcome. Cole explains that shame can be a contagion. Often our own shame can activate shame in others. Maybe, if you think about it now, you can locate where in your body you typically feel shame. In her interviews and in her book, Cole shares stories of her own experiences with shame and how she learned to pay deeper attention to her body, naming shame in retrospect. Her words have helped me look at my own experiences in a recent time where it was helpful to pause as the story was unfolding and voice to some of my closest people I think that embarrassment and shame are running the show right now. Naming can be a helpful tool in understanding our own sense of self. So what do we do with the shame? I think that we can come to the belief that God is both within us and within those around us. For some of us, the notion that God is within us has been affirmed our whole lives. Often this is true of those who hold privilege, whether the notion feels true for you or not. And the challenge here could be to look for the ways that you have been conditioned to doubt the holiness of those around you. Some of us may have been told that God can't possibly be within us. In fact, our sheer existence is a threat to the divine, the sacred. And the challenge may be to look for the ways that you have been conditioned to doubt the holiness within you. The journey inward doesn't have to be escapist or judgmental. Moving toward the God within us allows us to embrace knowing our bodies, not being ashamed of our bodies, even trusting our bodies and their potential to heal. Cole talks a great deal about dignity in her book. She writes that sometimes you can't talk someone into believing their dignity You do what you can to make a person feel unashamed of themselves, and you hope in time they'll believe in their beauty all on their own. I wanna read that one one more time. Sometimes you can't talk someone into believing their dignity. You do what you can to make a person feel unashamed of themselves, and you hope in time they'll believe in their beauty all on their own. I think it's important here that the answer to shame Isn't trust yourself fully 100% of the time and be confident. Because I'm not sure if that's the healthiest or even most achievable mindset to have. In becoming a mom, I heard countless times to trust my instincts or you'll know exactly what to do in the moment. But the number of times that I have been absolutely clueless, whoever came up with the phrase, trust your gut, probably didn't have IBS. (laughs) There are moments that I've known what to do And there have been moments when my expectation that I should know what to do actually brought about more shame. The shoulds that come up are often shame indicators and can lead to a spiral. Rather than ignoring our shame, I think we can listen to our shame, to pay attention to where we feel it in our bodies, and know that God is present with us even in shame. This inner sense of dignity and holiness, and an outer sense of dignity and holiness. Cole names that our inner holiness and belonging is not conditional on our beliefs about ourselves. Dignity and beauty are a given. In belonging to one another, when we talk about this, there are some additional obstacles that come up. The potential obstacle here is individualism, and we've talked about this one a lot, but the stress on the individual leads us often into a place of competition and judgment, clinging to whatever power we can attain. Supremacies thrive off of individualism in a similar way as with fear. There is a forced disconnection that can make it seem impossible to move forward. To counter individualism, Cole intentionally weaves together the stories of her grandma and her father and herself. In her prayers, she uses collective language often and is intentional about inclusion. In an interview with Leila Saad, she talks about picturing her ancestors with her as she was writing and how that led to an overall more compassionate and nuanced tone. Cole clarifies that her model for spirituality has to be intergenerational, dignity affirming, embodied liberation. A new belief that we can take up here, drawing upon the community model that she paints. Instead of going to individualism, we can go toward community. If God is a holy community in God's self, then embracing community is essential to our well-being. In this year flesh, Cole tells the story of watching her dad look in the mirror at his own face, and this was when she was young, and she felt compelled to tell him, that's not actually what you look like, that's not really your face. But she didn't have the words to describe the difference between what he was seeing of himself and what she was seeing, so she just held his face in her hands instead. In the mirror, we are only able to see a cloudy and distorted picture of who we are. We need others to mirror back to us how we actually appear, what our true self looks like. A question we can ask is, am I letting others mirror back to me? Am I letting myself be shaped by what they see? In describing God as a holy community, she writes, if we bear the image of God, that means we bear the image of a multitude. And to bear the image of God in its fullness, we need each other. I know that the more inclusive and wide our community is, the more beautiful picture of God we are able to piece together. The last obstacle that we'll talk about when it comes to belonging to one another is toxic positivity. Cole says people whose faiths are predicated on happiness make for dangerous friends and woefully disconnected fellow humans. That allure toward connecting faith with all things working out can actually draw us away from true community at times, especially when we try to placate pain with prayer. I can't tell you that God is in control. I can't offer some fail-proof and faithful solution for the real pain that we carry, whether individually or communally. I'm not interested in escapism, even though it's tempting, or trying to dilute and ignore the messiness of community that we named the past couple of weeks. A new belief here is that we can be a community that remains connected in our lament, not in our positivity not in an unwavering faith, but connected in our lament. Cole explains that lament is, in itself is a form of hope, that our la- hope can only be as deep as our lament is, and our lament as deep as our hope. A question we can be asking ourselves is, does my community have spaces for regularly expressing lament? Though it may seem counterintuitive, lament and joy are actually deeply related. Both are communal. Both are human attempts at interacting with the divine. In joy and in lament, we move toward justice. In joy and in lament, we move toward our collective identity that refuses to reduce complexity into a single emotion. We can find a realistic picture of being able to be grounded To remain tethered especially when positivity feels far off belonging means knowing our own stories and being willing to embrace the stories of others it is messy patient work that should propel us toward justice inclusion and hope and if you'll let me get in the weeds of scripture for a bit there's a story that comes to mind for me here it's an odd story I think I'm going to start preferencing all Bible stories with, here's an odd story, because that feels pretty accurate. But this story is told in the Gospels of the New Testament, books that capture the lived-out life of Jesus. In the story, Jesus is near a pool that was seen as a source of healing. And hundreds were gathered, hoping to experience healing for themselves. And he drew near to a man that had been lying there for 38 years. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? A rather strange question for someone in the midst of suffering, someone who is a societal outcast on the margins and likely forgotten about, someone who is defined by their pain. But we see this over and over again, particularly around stories of healing. Jesus lets those who are being healed name their own pain. Do you want to be well? And the man here immediately jumps into logistics. I haven't been able to access the healing waters, he says. Realistically, he knows he can't be well, even if he wants to be. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And he walks and he's physically healed. And the man tells those around him about the healing that has taken place. But this all happened on a holy day when there wasn't supposed to be any work. And the religious leaders question Jesus. You can't be healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus re-centers the man's story, his suffering, and his healing and communal restoration. Then, this is the weirdest part for me, in a side conversation, he tells the man to stop sinning or his life will be even more difficult. The end to their exchange is confusing. Maybe it seems dismissive or judgmental. Was Jesus equating the man's previous suffering with sinfulness? But when we actually look at what sin is, a word that gets weaponized often, sin causes some type of painful separation from ourselves, separation, a perceived separation from God, from one another. The man had been cut off from community, not by his own choice at all. And I don't think in any way that Jesus was saying his suffering was because of his sin. That isn't a picture of a compassionate God that I would want to be in relationship with. But moving forward, Jesus was cautioning against making choices that would lead to more separation for himself and for those around him. After the profound 38 years, I don't know if he needed this reminder, but their exchange reminds us of the importance of connection and reveals the glaring issue of injustice that the community should have been including those in pain to begin with. Through the man's healing, the community is transformed. Though shame can activate shame in others, our own healing and liberation can activate healing and liberation in others. In this year flesh, Cole writes, maybe God knows the paths we've walked but there is glory and healing in watching it fall from our own lips in our own words. We must relearn to embody a holy story exchange. And this is what is taking place in this story. The most compelling part of this narrative in John for me is that Jesus is with the man in his process of becoming well, in his process of belonging to himself again, in his process of belonging to community. The physical healing and transformation of the community itself is taking place. This is his own process of belonging, and God is present. The story is a reminder that longing to be well, individually and communally, is a process and maybe one that feels impossible. Maybe you are there now or have been there before. We can recognize that in our own process of belonging, God is with us, not shaming us, with us in the anxiety, with us in the lament. The path toward restoration is messy and hopeful all at once. On our journey toward belonging, it's important for us to consider who we are welcoming and who we may be forgetting or intentionally excluding, who is being centered in the collective stories that we are called to tell. Cole Arthur Riley paints, a picture of contemplative storytelling, a call to pay attention as we weave together the stories that have made us and the stories we are writing now. When we come up against obstacles on the way toward belonging, we have a choice, lean in or choose not to. Your decisions and boundaries either way are valid. Whatever you choose, God is with you in the process of being made well in the process of belonging to yourself and belonging to community." On her Black Liturgies account, Cole, Arth- Cole Arthur Riley often posts breath prayers as spiritual practices. So I thought that it would be grounding and helpful to look at some of her prayers today as a spiritual practice. So if you want to settle into a comfortable place, we're going to read through each of these prayers twice. And it's a with a breath prayer, you're saying something on the inhale and something on the exhale. It's a centering exercise. These will be up on the screen so that you can follow along and breathe at your own pace. And I'll leave some extra breathing room as we go through. These words may feel like words that you need to hear. And if they don't, I would love for you to think of someone in your community that may need to hear these words instead. Bring them to mind as you pray. If this doesn't feel like a helpful exercise, you can take this time to slow down and just focus on your breathing because we often don't get enough of that. So I'll put the first one up and we'll pray together. God, in our inhale and our exhale, would you guide us toward a sense of belonging and a sense of rest? I know who I am. This body is sacred. I know who I am. This body is sacred. Shame will not haunt me. I forgive myself Shame will not haunt me I forgive myself Be still, my soul In this quiet, I'm renewed. Be still, my soul. In this quiet, I'm renewed. My practice is love. We get free together. My practice is love. We get free together. My practice is love. We get free together. Jesus, on this journey toward belonging, may we continue to find voices that we can anchor ourselves in, that we can look to in awe and wonder. God, may we experience collective healing and restoration, collective lament, collective hope. Would you be with us? Would we notice your presence? as we proceed on this journey together. Mm. Amen.